Welcome to the Fod Eater Fod Path. <laughs> What's up, y'all? Froth here with the Thought Eater Podcast. Thank you for listening. Hope you are having an awesome weekend filled with gaming. It is Sunday, so that means I am going to be talking about my uh, Night Below campaign that I run on Saturday nights. This is the uh, Mammoth 2E era box set. And uh, I run it using a kind of hodgepodge of advanced Dungeons and Dragons, BX, uh, house rules, and and whatever else I want to stir up in the pot. So I'd mentioned on uh, the last recap that the last session was not one of the best. It wasn't a flat out disaster, but we did have a couple players not show up, which normally wouldn't matter too much, but <clears throat> as they are kind of starting to face some of the uh, more dangerous threats uh, during this segment of the campaign. Uh, it really hurt them, so they really just kind of got their butts kicked and, and ran away um, with their tails between their legs. Um, so they they camped out at the um, entrance of the mines, and luckily uh, this session they were back at full strength, but uh, as they had come to realize how dangerous the threats were that they were facing, they decided to ride back to the nearby town of Milbourne to uh, regroup and maybe bolster their numbers with some reinforcements. So that's what they did. They they started by riding down to Milbourne. Uh, so the first half of the session ended up being kind of role-play heavy, which was a good thing. It kind of, uh, they'd been doing a lot of dungeon crawling over the last few sessions, so it was a nice change of pace. Uh, brings out different elements of the game and gives it a more cinematic feel to have it broken up that way. So the first thing they did was uh, meet up with a ranger. There's a ranger named Gerald that lives in Milbourne, who's kind of a retired adventurer. He's got a bad leg, and uh, but he's still... Um, kind of heads up the militia of the town sh- should any humanoids attack and has a lot of contacts. So they met up with him and uh, decided to uh, see if he could help find some henchmen, men at arms to, to help them out, which he said he would do. The party also, during the last adventure, had found evidence that uh, this kidnapped mage's apprentice, her name is Jelhenna, it's kind of like a little subplot woven into the to the adventure anyway. She, uh, her fiance is still in Melbourne, and so the party have been trying to find clues of her disappearance. And for the first year or so of the campaign, they haven't found uh, any kind of trace. But they found a signet ring on one of the kidnappers that was inscribed with the J for her name. So it's the first real direct evidence they'd found of her. The party did not want to let the fiance know this at this time because they don't want him wanting to get get himself killed and, and everything else. And he's been like an emotional wreck. So anyway, Gerald agreed with this to try to keep it secret and went off to try to scare up some meat shields. I mean, <clears throat> henchmen for the party. The party also had lost their war dog uh, recently in another session, and so Mabeldob, the gnome fighter, uh, 
and dog lover went to the kennel to find a new dog if they had one they happened to have one trained war dog by the name of patches and so patches joined the party and uh, the rest of the party went to meet with lord carmen one of the two wealthy um, landowners and uh, people that live in the Heronshire area. He runs and owns the uh, the two operating mines, the Carmen Mines, to see if he might be able to offer any other support or anything like that. So what came out of this is, uh, you know, just like I, I, I've mentioned before, I try to throw a couple of tips and tricks and things like that into, uh, into these discussions and um, this is really things that I get reminded of that are helpful you know you always can get better um, and experience is the best teacher when you're running games so a couple things I was reminded of and and everything uh, you know with the role playing you're always going to have different players that some are more outgoing than others or some people kind of take the lead or some people are just naturally you know everybody's different. Some people are just naturally more outgoing or um, natu more natural performers or however you want to look at it. One good way to kind of draw everybody out in a scene or an encounter with someone uh, on a role-playing, kind of that role-playing basis, uh, because I think you do want to involve everybody. It, it gives it a different feel, gives it a different quality. Like I say, it gives it that cinematic kind of feel to it. Um, is really simple. Just have the NPCs ask specific players, uh, characters, a question. So instead of the NPC addressing the group saying, oh, so what happened? Uh, you could say, so Cyril, what happened? And address a specific player character. And uh, it's not to put them on the spot, but it just involves everyone. So everyone kind of ends up speaking, even if it's just a couple of sentences. And it, it's a way that the different personalities of the characters can start to be brought out. So it's just a real simple little thing, but just try when possible to, you know, mix in, you know, addressing the group, but also addressing specific people in the group, specific characters. The other thing, I was reminded of is, you know, it's really easy to remember the voices and mannerisms and stuff you use for NPCs when you're running a short game, uh, certainly a one-shot or just a few session thing or something where, you know, they encounter that NPC once and aren't ever going to encounter them again. But I was reminded when you're doing these long-term deals and you've got NPCs they might encounter once, you know, four months, you know, and then four months go by and they'll, they'll encounter them again. It's really easy to forget what you did for them in some ways. Uh, that definitely happened to me a little bit. I was like, did I use a French accent for this guy or not? You know, so I guess I kind of default to a, a little English sort of deal or whatever. But uh, anyway, so something that I need to re remember to do is make a couple just notes about how I spoke for the NPC or anything else that I did like that, you know? Um, so that was just something that I thought I'd mention that 
I could be better at because some of these people they hadn't talked to in quite a while. It was like, man, how did I do this ranger again? So I'm going to try to get better at that. But Anyway, the uh, Lord Carmen didn't have too much for them. I, I kind of did some random rolls just to see if you might have something for them and uh, came up with uh, vial of holy water and uh, a couple of healing potions, but he didn't have anything major that was going to help them. He did offer them another horse that they had lost, uh, but anyway, so they, they rode out of town to meet up with these henchmen that, um, that Gerald was able to raise up for them, and, and so we had uh, Kyra, she is a you know, fighter type, you know, skilled with the bow, skilled with the blade, you know, kind of wise, you know, kind of smart, kind of wise, um, you know, they're not going to be able to kind of, you know, trick her into anything or that sort of thing. Uh, and I'll get to that a little bit when I talk about how I'm handling the henchmen in this game. But then there are also two kind of oafish brothers, Farley and Barley, that are, are farmers that are, uh, you know, not the sharpest knives in the drawers. And um, so, you know... As far as henchmen go, men at arms, whatever, you know, there's they're lovingly referred to as meat shields, because in a lot of ways that's that's kind of what they are. I mean, they really are there to help uh, strengthen a party, uh, help them out, make it less dangerous, absorb some damage. Um, you know, that's one of their functions, right? So, but. <clears throat> And while I don't use the exact, you know, I don't get too granular with it as far as reactions and stuff. If you look in the first edition DMG, there are so many different kind of standards to look at their reactions and loyalty and, and all that. But in a lot of ways, I just kind of play it by ear. And so with with, with these guys, they... They, they basically get back to the Garlstone mines and are getting ready to, this is an example that can show you how I, I handle it on the fly. They, they go back to the lower levels of the Garlstone mines. And so they're, they're, they're getting ready to, to go down to the bottom level and trying to decide who goes first. And so the party, or I forget which one, I think it was Moshi. Yeah, it was Moshi. So she says, you know, to Barley, well, go on down there. You're, you're so big and so strong. You know, it's trying to talk him into it, basically treating him like the, the the kind of slow guy that he is. And so, you know, just and really in a metagame sense, just trying to use the, the henchman as a as a meat shield. So I, I allow it, I say, you know, Barley's flattered by what, what she says and just jumps right down there, but you know, again he's not you know, the brightest guy, so when he gets down there it's kinda of like, Oh, you know, it's dark down here. Oh, there's an echo Hello, hello, hello. I'm Barley, I'm Barley, I'm Barley. This is awesome, awesome, awesome. So he's just making tons of noise. And the party's groaning like, oh no, you know. So <clears throat> sometimes kind of use their their ideas against them. Uh, things like that, you know. If they want to be led by the, the farm boy henchman um, that's never really adventured much before and 
is not being cautious or careful, you know, that can go come back to haunt them. So just a, you know, way on the fly that, that, uh, to, that I adjusted to that, that, uh, made for some humor, but also kind of, you know, taught them that lesson that they might not want the random henchmen being the, uh, the leaders or, uh, make, you know, going first and that kind of thing in every situation. So anyway, um, something I'll go ahead and mention now, um, that I, I play my games in, in Greyhawk, generally speaking, um, on the 12th of each month, we, we I, I make it honor, uh, St. Mojo and Mojo was our actual player in my games for years who passed away last year. Um, and he was an awesome guy. Um, very sweet, caring individual. And he was very important to our, our games. Um, uh, thoughtful, considerate. He was really what, in a lot of ways, what I consider an ideal player because he always had creative ideas. He, he role play. He, he knew rules of the game. Um, he played a lot, I know. And so it's possible if you're listening to this and you're saying, huh, we used to, I used to play with a mojo online or I think I know who you're talking about. Well, anyway, he sadly passed away and it was on the 12th of a month that it happened. And I was just trying to think of ways to honor him, things that he would have enjoyed and appreciated. And, uh, so making him, uh, you know, kind of a saint in Greyhawk and making a, a day of the month kind of dedicated to him was what I came up with. And so I decided to make him into sort of a demigod of, gaming, camaraderie, chance, luck, you know, the luck of the dice and that sort of thing. So on the 12th of each month in the campaign, you know, the 12th of the actual, you know, dates in the, uh, in the Greyhawk calendar, um, I, I allow the, there's a little luck in the air. It's kind of the way I describe it from St. Mojo. And so the party uh, gets a free reroll. And then also just, you know, harebrained plans can sometimes go right or things, uh, you know, the luck is kind of on the party side and I kind of just rule how that happens on the fly. So when you hear me describe some of the events that happen, they wouldn't have happened that way without it being the 12th of the month. So anyway, um, the party goes down to the lower levels and it's here. I want to compliment this, uh, the campaign a little bit, you know, the Gygax modules are my favorites. If anyone would ask me what my favorites are, I, I talk about Sajkanth and Thera's done and all uh, Homlet and all that stuff. But a close second is some of the, uh, the Zeb cook stuff. Uh, obviously people know Isle of Dread, uh, slave pits, the undercity. Um, but, uh, I think the best is probably uh, Dwellers of the Forbidden City. That's like one of the most, the best modules I think ever, ever made. And the reason I like his so much is because he's really good at um, doing interesting encounters with creatures that don't always get used a lot. Uh, if you've never looked at those modules, they're, they're just awesome. 
and he's really good at developing these unique kind of encounters that end up very memorable and really iconic. Um, so, although he did not write The Night Below, there, there were a couple of pieces in the lower levels that reminded me of something he would have done, you know, in a really good way. Uh, by and large, so far in the campaign, they've been facing these kind of just sort of faceless kidnapper types that are just, you know, kind of player uh, class types, you know, like a thief or a fighter or whatever, the occasional cleric. And aside really from, you know, random tables that I've done and things like that that I've thrown in, that's kind of what they've been facing. So <clears throat> I'm not going to say it's been stagnant, but it just hasn't been a wide variety of enemies or anything. So that that changes down in the lower levels here which was really a, a good thing. Uh, so they went back to the cavern where the horned helmet, you know, badass fighter had been, and he's long gone from that area, but there's kind of like a little trick set up. There's a, they could see kind of a gleaming gold shine coming from this kind of ledge that goes around a kind of pool that, that is formed in the cavern. And uh, so the thief immediately wants to go see what it is, goes up there, and what pops out of the pool but this huge albino eel. So this crazy eel that has never seen the sunlight, so it's white, its eyes are kind of milky and glazed over, and it's just one of these, you know, like deep water weird creatures you sometimes will see uh, on a news story or something pulled up from the depths. So it was this, you know, cool animal, you know, creature you don't get to use that much. And unfortunately for the thief, he was surprised and it snatched him up and basically dropped him. Uh, the thief did make a, a dex kind of check. So was kind of dropped um, as he was bitten and kind of fell out of the, the eel's mouth. But he was down, and so the party was fighting basically this kind of sea monster, long neck kind of deal, this huge eel. Um, so it was just a cool monster that you don't normally get to use. And uh, I, as far as like death rules, I don't use exactly like first edition or like with negative hit points. I never use that. I've kind of just come up with my own way over the years. I, you know, you're, you're, you're dead or dying at zero. Um, but if the party can get some magical healing to you within a couple of, you know, a couple of minutes, um, they can usually bring you back. Uh, but I mean, if you're, if you've been burned up by lava or, you know, your body can't be recovered or you're cut into pieces or melted or whatever, it's, you're just dead, dead. But if, if they can get some magical healing into you within a couple of rounds, they can, uh, usually bring you back. So the cleric ran over to. Uh, theory and the thief that was that was dying and uh, gave him a heal, and this is one of those ways that I, in you know, used the Saint Mojo influence in the game. So when he healed him, it was just for like four hit points or something. But because it was the day of Saint Mojo, you know, he he felt the presence of Mojo and it it healed him all the way up. And then, you know, Mojo's, you know, you hear this disembodied voice saying, be more careful, Therian, you know, or something kind of like Mojo would say. So it was just, you know, I hope, it, 
whatever. I hope Mojo's smiling or would, would enjoy that. Um, it just felt feels good to to bring him into it like that. So anyway, the party uh, found that the the thing that had been glistening was actually a severed hand of a halfling, and it was just a couple of rings that were glistening in, in the in the light. Uh, and that was what was, was up on the ledge. So I thought that was a nice touch. Very Zeb Cook-like encounter there. Uh, so the party pressed on. They found another chamber where it was another large flooded cavern. And um, they could see kind of, for, you know, 35, 40 feet away, um, a body floating in the pool face down. Just kind of like a black cloak. Um, so the way that this encounter is set up in the campaign is, uh, if, you know, they're very unlikely to be able to lasso it or, or fish the body in. So they might, you know, have to try to swim out to it or whatever, if they really want the body. And then there are a couple like giant catfish that are in this pool that will attack. Uh, but the party has a grappling hook and a lot of rope. So they had the idea to just, you know, kind of throw the hook at it and try to drag it in that way. Which I was going to allow, but I wasn't going to allow unless it was like a roll of 19 or 20. So a couple of them tried and missed. And I said, well, that's causing a ripple that's pushing the body further away. So they were about to not have enough rope to even be able to attempt it. But then uh, Therian hit a 19 and caught it and pulled it in. So this body is like in a decomposed state. And in the campaign, it also, it was like a, I don't want to say what it is in case they listen to it. Because they haven't identified the body yet. But also kind of had some kind of skin disease or something on top of it. So just by handling it, there's a chance of disease. Uh, but the percentage dice were in their favor and they didn't contract the disease. And anyway, the only thing of interest on the body is this brooch of shielding, uh, which kind of shields against magic missiles. So they found that. And um, also had a kind of a unique serpentine kind of um, design on the side, you know, on the back of it. So maybe they can use that to identify who it belonged to at some point. Uh, so the, the session enter, uh, ended with them going a little bit further into the uh, caverns. And, you know, another good thing about this game, about this campaign is each kind of cave, they, they do something different with the description of it. There might be unique mineral deposits or unique rock formations that have, have given the, the cave a different title um, or nickname by the miners that used to go in there. And that was a good reminder because although some of the, the names for the cavern rooms are a little, I don't know, quirky or a little precious stuff that I wouldn't necessarily come up with on, on my own, it was just a lot better than just saying, okay, it's another cave room. All right, it's another cave room. There's, you know, stalactites. Uh, you enter another cave. You know, it gave each uh, room some flavor. So I think that that's something good that I would certainly remember if I'm, you know, writing something or designing something set underground. Uh, some way to kind of break it up or give a, a, a better mental image or, you know, some variation to you know, cave to cave to cave, you know, chamber to chamber to chamber. So that was something that this module does well. Uh, but anyway, they, they enter into uh, another room that's kind of got all these irregular shapes of, of, uh, 
of rock and stuff that's kind of like flower petals. So um, the room has a, the chamber has a very unique shape as compared to a lot of the other ones in the, the cavern and the, the mine. So uh, this was awesome. And this again reminded me a little of, of Zeb Cook because it was one of these creatures you, you rarely get to use. In fact, I, I don't know if I ever um, have used a cave fisher, or if I had, it's been a long time. But the the creatures in this uh, um, encounter were cave fishers, which if you haven't used them before, they've got this kind of sticky string um, that this like line that they they release from their bodies that. Can, and is very uh, thin and nearly invisible. It's almost um, impossible to detect until you're right next to it. Even then, it's only like a 20% chance. So they they have these kind of lines drop down, and if an adventurer runs into it, the next thing they'll do is you know reel them up, you know, and start to try to eat them. So um, a couple of the uh, the party members. Cyril and Moshi both got uh, entangled in the uh, the lines and they had failed their chances to notice and so kind of combat ensued now the the uh, the cave fishers in initiative was was terrible for both rounds so they didn't really have a chance to do much they started to kind of pull them up when they 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 were uh, the party you know wiped them out pretty quick but it did give me another chance to use the uh, the influence of St. Mojo as, uh, you know, once two characters, a character and an enemy or whatever are engaged in first edition and you're trying to kind of fire into that melee, you know, it's really a 50-50 proposition or a different ratio depending on the size of the different combatants. But, you know, there's a really good chance that you're going to hit your ally if, you know, you're, you're firing into melee. Um, but in this case, uh, with, with the influence of St. Mojo in the air, you know, I just kind of ruled on this day that, I, you know, I, I didn't mention it to them specifically, but I just allowed them not to, you know, only the, the enemies to be targeted. So it was just another way to kind of bring that into it. And then after they had killed the, the cave fishers, um, Cyril was kind of pulled up, you know, about 20 feet, uh, into the air to be attacked by the cave fisher that was kind of perched on a ledge. So when they killed the cave fisher and he was released, he fell. But again, the influence of St. Mojo was there. So he kind of just took a little, you know, scratch from the cave wall on his fall, but kind of twisted into an acrobatic, you know, perfect landing as far as, uh, you know, avoiding any falling damage went. So, Again, and, and then the disembodied voice of Mojo heard in his head, uh, you know, said, be more careful, Therian, or something like that. Um, and, you know, so I don't know. It's just something, it's really personal and uh, something that for for our group, since we love uh, Joe and, and spent so much time playing with him, but... Um, it was just a beautiful thing, just something I really, I love being able to, you know, keep him in our, our memories and, and just do something that I, I really, you know, hope, or I really think that, that he would have loved like that. So, 
so anyway, that is where we kind of paused for the for the night. Um, I won't be able to run the game over the next couple of weeks. My wife's birthday is next weekend, so looking forward to that. And then the weekend after, we're going to go, um, we're actually going to go, I don't know if you guys are into post-punk type music. I don't even know if you would describe it as that. Pretty unique. We're going to see uh, Peter Murphy and David J of Bauhaus are playing the entire In the Flat Field album which is a favorite of mine. Um, really looking forward to that. So we're going to go to that in a couple weeks and uh, just stay kind of in the, the Atlanta area over the weekend. So it was good to have a great session. Everybody had fun, lots of excitement, uh, and have it be a good spot to pause since I'm not going to be running for a few weeks. So uh, when we get back to it, when I get back to these, you'll be hearing about what happens next in the Garlstone Mines. So so I want to tell you uh, thank you if you're listening, if you're enjoying these, if you've ever had any experience running the night below or as a, as a GM or played in it as a player or have any thoughts about any of the other kind of game-related stuff that I talked about, you can send me a voicemail on here or send me an email. It's frothsof, that's froth, S-O-F, at gmail.com. Uh, you can always check out my Thought Eater blog. That's Frothsoft, Froth, S-O-F-D-N-D, frothsoftdnd.blogspot.com. I also just recently joined Twitter, and uh, the reason I did that is because there were a lot of people doing RPG stuff, uh, D&D stuff, things like that, that that's the only place they really kind of communicate or uh, you can connect. Um, so... If uh, if you're on Twitter and want to connect with me, I'd, I'd love that. So it's uh, on Twitter, it's at Frothsoft, again, Froth, S-O-F. That is my uh, handle on there. So I'd love to see you on there. And uh, I think that's all I've got for you. I hope you all have a great rest of the weekend. Thanks again for listening, and talk to you next time.